0: I would invite you to turn um, to Exodus chapter 21. The fact that we are in Exodus 21 means that we are over the hump, right? So we're, we are now halfway done, or we will be more than halfway done tonight. And so Exodus 21 actually deals with a lot of very interesting things uh, that, that hopefully uh, we'll be able to to shed some light on tonight. If anyone did not grab a paper on your way in, there are some, some lesson sheets to follow. There's some back there in the back on that, in that offering plate, and there's a couple up here, so you can feel free to do that. I'm going to have to just read some of uh, Exodus chapter 21, and so why don't we just get right into it here. Exodus 21, beginning in verse 1. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave... He shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, his, uh, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. If she does not do these three things for her, if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without, paying, uh, without payment of money. So let's stop right there, the first 11 verses. Deal with some very interesting things about slavery. Uh, one of the first things that we have to, that we have to uh, note is that slavery in the Old Testament and in the Old Testament Israel is not the same kind of slavery that we have in our minds? We have in our minds the stain of a very horrendous form of slavery that took place in this country uh, for many years the transatlantic chattel slavery, uh, slave trade that took place here that involved man-stealing or, or kidnapping. The Bible uses the word man-stealing. Uh, well, this is a little bit different, and we're going to be able to talk about these things in a moment. But first, let's look at our, at our paper here, and here's what it says. In chapter 20, we, we reflected on the ten words. In other words, the, um, the ten commandments. So chapter 20, right in the dead middle of the book of Exodus, is a kind of a turning point chapter there. What follows is called the Book of the Covenant, and that's what we're reading from tonight the Book of the Covenant in Exodus 20 through 23. Uh, these involve kind of these general commands that regulate life in Israel because Israel's a very interesting kind of nation, right? They are supposed to be a theocracy, they're supposed to be a nation who has God as its leader. Uh, different from anything that we have ever known. We have presidents. After this period of time here, they had kings because they were not content just to have God as their leader. And so God uh, met them in their weakness and allowed them to have kings and at different points allowed them to have judges and, and, uh, and prophets and things like that. But these general commands regulate life in Israel. In other words, you imagine this. You have a bunch of people who get together and form a nation, and they're all sinners, right? And Jesus hasn't come yet, so how is it to be that life should be regulated? How is God going to set up, let's say, guardrails to keep the people from sin? He does this by giving them the law, by giving them very specific commands about what to do and what not to do. He does it in such a way, though, that they will be marked out from the other nations in their laws and customs because the laws and the restrictions and the commandments that God gives Israel many times are different and new and never before heard of in any other society or in any other nation that lived in the same time or before Israel. And so, in the giving of the law, these kind of guardrails for sin... God distinguishes himself, and he distinguishes his people. He shows that he is a God like none other, that this nation is to be a nation like none other. Let's talk about these general and case laws, because that's important for us to understand before we really delve into Exodus 21. Among the different laws given to Israel, there are, there are kind of just two categories. The first, and I'm going to give you a, a big word, but it's... Um, It's there for your reference, and in case you keep these, you'll have them forever if you want to hole-punch these two, these lessons through Exodus. Apodictic. just means general, across-the-board kind of laws that are are given. Uh, And then the second kind is casuistic. uh, Casuistic. It means case law, case by case. In other words, you'll hear uh, in the law in the Old Testament, if this happens, then you should do this. Very specific, case-by-case laws. They're not just... Uh, broad general laws, the apo, apodictic, that would be like the Ten Commandments, right? These broad, they shall they shall uh, cover a, a very broad kind of set of your interactions with other people and with God. You shall have no gods, right? It would be more of a case law. It's like, if this happens, uh, you know, if you come to find that someone has, uh, ha- has created an idol, then you should do this with it, right? That would be the case-by-case law. Um... Uh, so, here, here, but here's a question that some might have: Isn't this just a replication of Hammurabi's Hammurabi's law, or or another kind? And, and the answer is no. First of all, there are actually other ancient law codes that are closer to the Book of Covenant than Hammurabi's, but still yet. The similarities deal with the common issues arising in ancient Near Eastern life. In other words, you can imagine if you have six different societies living in the same general area in the same time period, all of their laws are going to have to do at some points with how you handle your cattle, right? That doesn't mean that one group is borrowing from another. It just means that they all had to deal with this reality or had to deal with theft or had to deal with uh, murder, things like that. Uh, you would expect each culture to have rules about how to deal with, with these things. The differences mark out Israel's law as given by God, though. It includes certain things nowhere else seen. Here's, here are a few of those examples. Um, restrictions on slavery, the very type of slavery, and then the dignity of human life. So let's look at this, slavery. First off, he says in verse 1, now, uh, or in verse 2, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. This, this term, the Hebrew slave, it points us to the reality that a different kind of slavery is in view than the kind that was used among the nations. And here's a little more depth on that. Theirs, Israel's slavery, was a kind of indentured servitude. The word for slave can also be translated servant. Okay? So the first thing we have to do is really do our best to get out of our situation in in, in America where we think when we hear the word slave, it has a very specific and horrendous meaning in our lives, and rightfully so. But what's going on here is a little more of an institution in the the nation of Israel that was given to keep people from becoming destitute. In other words, you can imagine a person who has no other options, who if they don't get taken care of, they will starve. You can imagine them coming to a master, coming to a wealthy person and saying, I will work for you, if you will provide me food, clothing, shelter, because otherwise I'm going to die. And this being instituted in such a way that on the year of Jubilee, in the seventh year, they had to go free. Here's the dirty little secret. What if somebody comes to you in the sixth year? In Israel, you still had to let them go the very next year you paid the the price or whatever, they were were free to go. And so um, it it was a poverty-based slavery, not a man-stealing and a violent slavery as the very one that they had just experienced in Egypt, right? You would imagine that of all people to know the evils of the bad kind of slavery, Israel would be the people who would understand it because they were mistreated horribly by Pharaoh. And they've just come out of that situation. Um, So, here are a few bullet points. Israel had to let their slaves go free each every seven years. Israel was to treat their slaves according to God's view on human dignity. In other words, they were not to treat their servants or those who had sold themselves into this kind of this protection clause or this protection institution that is called slavery in our Bibles... Uh, they, were, they were supposed to be treated, according to God's view, on human dignity. Slaves were free to ask to stay. Here's another little indication. Apparently, the kind of servanthood or servitude that happened in Israel was such that many times the servants did not want to leave, and they, even when they had the choice to. And that's why this provision is given here. It says... But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. In other words, I don't want to go. I will not go out. Then his master shall bring him to God. And in, like before God, there's this ceremony that happens, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. I'm not sure exactly what's going on here, but the reality is there could be a financial burden on the behalf of the master, right? He's responsible to take care of this person according to how God has told him to. Um, So uh, here's another uh, point. The last one is the, the inclusion of rules regulating slavery here. In no way, Justifies the very abhorrent transatlantic chattel slavery of the 1600s and 1800s in the New World. And, friends, we have to be honest about something. In the history of the church in the United States, there have been those who have used passages like this one to justify evil. And that's not good. This kind of slavery that occurred in the New World. Uh, it always involved kidnapping, which is expressly prohibited in this very chapter. In chapter 21, verse 16, look what it says there. Chapter 21, verse 16, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So, when the Bible uses slavery here in Exodus 21, it's not talking about the same thing uh, that we know to be evil. So, it's important things to know. But what's the Christ connection? In other words, is this just a chapter about slavery or is there a deeper point? Well, as always in the Old Testament, there's always a deeper point. There's always a shadow pointing to a reality. There's always a picture that points toward the fullness of something. Once we cut through the weeds of our pictures of slavery, we're able to see the picture that God was pleased to use to speak about his relationship, slavery in the Old Testament gives us an opportunity to see a picture of how our relationship with God should be. That we are what the New Testament calls a doulos Christu, a slave of Christ. That is our identity in the New Testament. God doesn't call us, and this is very important, God doesn't call us to serve he calls us to be servants, right? If God just called you to serve, then that's almost like, well, I'll kind of serve when I feel like it, right? I can come to church, I can serve, or I can elect not to, or, or whatever. If I feel like it, I'll serve. If I don't feel like it, I won't serve. But if God has called you to be a servant, then our choice in the matter Does not exist. Like we are, as an identity, we are slaves to Christ. We are servants of Him. Someone who merely serves can choose the stipulations, they can come and go, but a servant or a slave has taken on a new identity. It is as if God has brought us to the doorpost and has driven His all through our ear and has made us His, and we don't want to leave just like the ones described here, because we love our master. Servant has given up rights for the sake of the good master. Just as the masters were to treat their servants well in Israel, we see a picture of how God will always take care of those who have given themselves to him. God will take care of us, his servants. It says that in Matthew 11. I'll just read that briefly. Matthew eleven twenty eight through thirty. All right, Matthew eleven twenty eight says this: Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest. For your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we come to Christ, He gives us a yoke. This is what's incredible. He gives us a yoke, which a yoke is usually thought of as a burden, right? uh, you, you You put the oxen in the yoke and they're to pull something, they're beasts of burden. But Christ says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And I've used this illustration before. It's not mine. It comes from Dane Ortland, But he has likened it to this. The yoke of Jesus weighs you down like a life jacket weighs you down in the lake. Right? Well, I'm putting something on. Wouldn't that encumber me? No, actually, it lifts you. How could it be that putting an extra burden on could make you light, and that's an illustration for what Christ does. There's some case laws here, and we need to read about them and and what they tell us about God. Let's look at verse uh, uh, 12 through 16. Verses 12 through 16 says this. "'Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death.' But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses... Let's see, I've already read too far there. Verse 16. Here's what these laws are teaching. They're teaching how God's people are expected to act. You know, Perhaps you might, you might look through the Old Testament and say to yourself, wow, you know, it seems like God is really kind of heavy-handed. He seemed, he's, it's like He's always trying to you know, drop the hammer on some of these foreign nations that don't like His people. And I'm like, I don't know, guys. It seems like He's a pretty equal-opportunity God. He's, he's making very, very high expectations for his own people. And he's saying that the image of God in man is so valuable that if you, Israelite, kill someone else and it's, and it's verified and, and this, this charge has been made certain on the, on the testimony of two or three witnesses, then you too shall die. Why? Because you do not take the image of God. Only God has the right to do that. Um, So, the value of human life. This list of laws seems to be ordered. If if we look, we we see it starts out very serious. Uh, Not that any of them are, are not serious, but it starts out very high, high magnitude here, this list of laws seems to be ordered in a rank of descending magnitude. It just it seems like they, it starts out with the most serious offenses and the most serious consequences for that. Uh, an important note is this. Did you notice the idea of intention is, is introduced here? In other words, there's a difference between an accidental killing and a murder, right? I mean, you could be driving down the road and lose a steering tire, and it pulls you over into oncoming traffic and you kill someone completely by no fault of your own. That's different from lying in wait to murder someone, right? Intention, the content of the heart, is important to God. It matters why someone was killed. A person's condition of heart, uh, what we call today in our legal system, system, malice aforethought, or malice aforethought. I never have understood how you're supposed to which syllable you're supposed to put the emphasis on, right? In our culture today, intention, though, is becoming less and less important, if you've noticed. A switch from the objective to the subjective is showing itself in this perceived offense. You cannot intend to offend someone, but they will say that you have offended them. And not only that, people are saying now, your words have done me harm, Right? It's very strange the things that are taking place in our culture today harm, trauma these interesting terms, which are typically have been in the past reserved for something that has happened to your person. But this departure from God's standard will no, will no doubt yield some sour fruit. If I could say something completely innocent, but because you desire to interpret it as harmful or trauma, it's like, well, goodness, I had no, I had no intention to, to do that. Um, so, that's just an interesting thing. God is, is, is concerned about intention. Here's a, a second example. Uh, look at verses 18 through 21. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and then the man does not die but takes to his bed... Then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. He shall only pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. And when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two and is not avenged, for the slave is his money. Okay, so... It's so arising from, you can imagine, arising from anger that spills over into a fight or into a, uh, you know, some kind of physical altercation. Uh, what, is, what is to be done is to repay what was lost. Here's a third example, a little bit longer, verses 22 through 25. When men strive together or fight together, right, and hit a pregnant woman so that her, child, so that her children come out, But there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So here's what we learn the value of the unborn is communicated here. It mirrors a number of other passages in the Bible, like Jeremiah five and Psalm 139. But it goes on to say that the result of striking the pregnant woman communicates this. There's a fine for the offense, but the loss of life is considered capital. Uh, we need to address a misconception here uh, because you've no doubt heard the, um, you know, if, if we did the eye for an eye thing, the whole world would be blind Sadly, the eye for the eye phrase has, has been taken as an allowance for revenge. It's not what's going on here. Yet this is not the message uh, communicated, as I just say. An appropriate restitution or punishment must be in place to mirror God's justice and to preserve the value of His image in man. This is not a license to become one's own judge and to seek revenge. We learn this from, of course, Romans 12, 19. These are instructions given to the nation. These are instructions given to the state. If someone burns my house down, the appropriate response is not for me to go burn their house down. The appropriate response is for me to take it to those that God has entrusted Take it to the authorities that God has set up so that justice might be more clearly carried out. But, as we know, Romans chapter 14, the state does bear the sword. And the state uh, does not bear the sword for no reason. I brought these things up. I was invited to pray at the recent, um, or to do the invocation, which is a prayer at the recent um, fiscal court. Thank you. Uh, recently, and this is uh, one of the things that I prayed. I say, Lord, you've given us leaders. You've given us uh, folks on the local government level. You've given them responsibilities. We pray that they would make wise decisions. We know that you've entrusted them with a great you know, uh, responsibility. We know that you have not given the sword the state for no reason, but we ask you at the same time that they make their judgments justly and that they lead us well. Example number four, uh, and this is the last one, accidents and negligence. Look how, how this is explained, verses 33 through 36. Skipping down a little bit, beginning in verse 33. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make Restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When the man's ox butts another so that it dies, then he shall sell the live ox and share its price. And the dead beast shall also, they shall share, I Suppose for the, for the meat. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, in other words, if there's knowledge that this particular ox is known to be a mean one, and its owner has not kept it in. In other words, he's been negligent. He shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. Okay, so we talked last week about the purpose of the law and about how God's law is is interesting because these commands were given to Old Testament Israel, which was a nation, a theocracy, and they were to walk before God. This is before Jesus. This is before even the Holy Spirit, I believe, came, came to dwell inside believers, right? The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is seen as going on a person to accomplish a, a purpose, but it's only after Pentecost and in Acts chapter 2 that we see the Holy Spirit indwelling people, although it's certainly free to disagree with, with, with that. But, um, but this is before all of that happens. And so what we learn is that the Old Testament laws like these case laws that deal with oxen and, and, and servants and things, they're not binding on us today, but they do reveal something about God. They reveal what kind of God He is. He's a God of justice. He's a God who, even in the midst of this culture that had very barbaric means of relating to one another, God steps in and says, no, human life is valuable. Human life is so valuable that to to wantonly take it means that the state that I have instituted can, if there is sufficient evidence, take your life as a picture of just how valuable the Imago Dei is. Um, And other things like this, the human life is so valuable that you shall not steal another person. That's also a dishonor to the image of God, the Imago Dei in man. Here are a few things that we learn, these bullet points, as we begin to land the plane. God is Lord of Israel. While the specific laws have been fulfilled in Christ, we learn much about what God values and how we might act justly. In other words, even if laws about oxen are not binding on us today, they do teach us principles about how we should treat our neighbor's property how we should not be negligent, how we should value human life. The specific nature of the many case laws show us just how complicated it is to live as a distinct people in Israel. I mean, a lot of this book, a lot of the first five books are just dealing with how complicated it is. And friends, why is it so complicated? It's so complicated because sin has infected everything that we deal with every day. And it's infected us, of course. God showed his grace to them. God showed his grace to his people Israel by placing rails on sin to give the nation a pattern to follow. He provided them with a blueprint, as it were, so that they might not go off the rails. And then lastly, authorities should be charitable. Human life is sacred. A laborer's time is valuable. He he should not be cheated. And God's people must walk Injustice. These are the things that we learn about God. These are the things that we learn, hopefully, seeing through these things, seeing through them as a window, as it were, uh, on to see that we are to be slaves of Christ because He is the true and better Master. And He's a Master who will always care for us, His servants, and we should give Him praise because of these things. Why don't we leave it there? I'll pray and we'll have a short time of reflection and response. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for even the complicated, difficult parts. It's hard to, you know, really fully fully put flesh on to. But Lord, I pray that you would just make your word clear. I pray that we would understand it. I pray that for all of the areas in the Bible where uh, the cultural differences are hard to kind of wade through, that we would see through them uh, on to see who it is that you are as you have revealed yourself and how it is that we should live and act in light of the fact that you are God. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.